It's been great to sing of God's mercy. Because our goal this morning is really to exalt the mercy of God, to see the mercy of God undisplayed, undisplayed before us. It is truly my prayer that God would work through my own limitations to to help us see the wonders of his mercy. We've, sing, we've sung of it, we've seen it through the song, but I pray that we will again, again see the wonders of God's mercy on display through the preaching of his word. And to do this, I must say, tell you, I feel quite inadequate, but I trust that God, who is powerful, who is kind, who is merciful, would work through our own limitations to do what needs to be done, to put his mercy before his people that would find comfort in it, that would find strength in it, and that his name would be glorified, that would be changed by it. And if you are here, you do not know this mercy. It is my prayer that God would open your eyes, that you would see your need for it. That's what we want God to do. So please join me again as we declare our dependency on the Spirit of God toward the fulfillment of this great task. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that declares clearly our need for your mercy. And thank you that you've used your word, Father, to help us. To help us receive your mercy. And it is our prayer this morning that you would use your word to encourage us to continue and to respond rightly the mercy that we have received. Oh, help us. Help us, Lord. Work in us. Work through us. Work in spite of us. Work beyond what we can ever, ever do this morning for the glory of your great name, for the achievement of your great work. We pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, I would ask you to please turn it to the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We will be focusing on verses 1 and 2. But I want to read a little bit before our verses before Romans chapter 12, beginning in Verse 30 of chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verse 30. Let's begin there. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, 
So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen. This morning we have before us a text that is without a doubt quite familiar to most of you. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you've most likely heard many, many references to this text. Maybe in Sunday school or from the pulpit. Many of you, I would guess, have memorized this text. I remember very well as a little boy memorizing this text in, in the one French version that we use in our little Haitian Baptist church. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who can recite it. You may be so familiar with it that you can even explain it quite clearly to others. So then the question is why are we here this morning? We are here because even though the truths that we have in this text are truths that we are quite familiar with, they are truths that we need to hear again and again and again. For if you are like me, even though you've received the mercy of God, you know the mercy of God, the temptation is for you to get up and seek to build your life, seek to serve God on the basis of other things. Perhaps on the basis of your own intelligence or your own merit. Or maybe you are not serving because you don't feel worthy enough. So regardless of where you are this morning, I believe the message that is before us is one that you feel a desperate need to hear. I do. 
I need to hear this again and again. Again and again. It is a truth that we can know, we can explain, we can even preach it, but we can never say that we've graduated from the need to hear this text. So it is with a spirit of total dependence on, the, on God that we want to look at this text that is familiar to us. And we pray that God would use it again this morning to help us see the wonders, the wonders of what God has done for us in Christ, in showing us mercy. And that this revelation of God's mercy will affect us deeply. That it will move us to respond gladly, fully, in surrender. In the surrender of everything that we are, in the surrender of everything that we have. This is a prayer that I have this morning. And I'm confident that the Spirit of God will do what he has done many times, that he will indeed impress this truth upon our minds and hearts. This morning, if you're taking notes, I want to look at this text under three broad uh, categories, and I say that because there will be a lot of sub-points, maybe too many, I hope not. <laughs> but to help you follow... The other three broad uh, titles under which we'll be looking at this text. First, a reasonable call. Spend much time there. The second one, an all-encompassing call. Third, a God-glorifying call. A reasonable call. An all-encompassing call and a God-glorifying call. A reasonable call. In the text before us, the Apostle Paul begins by telling us exactly what he is doing. He is making an appeal. He's making an appeal to those he refers to as brothers. Brothers, a term that he uses quite often in the New Testament to refer not to a special class of people, but to all those who are followers of Christ. All those who have come to know Christ in a saving way. It is to them that this appeal is being made. So this appeal is not for a special class of people. So if you are here this morning, and you consider yourself a follower of Christ, this appeal is to you. It is not an appeal for those who feel a special call to do a special task. It is an appeal for all those who consider themselves brothers and sisters in the family of God. It's a very important thing for us to know as we approach this text, this text and as we deal with the demands that it makes of us. And Paul, in appealing to them, as he, he says, the word that he uses is a word that is not really a word of command. 
Paul could have used his authority as an apostle to say, I command you, therefore, brothers, to present yourself. But he says, I appeal to you. So the idea, the tone is one of encouragement. The idea of someone coming alongside of you to encourage you to do what you know you need to do. That is the tone of Paul here. He's appealing to them. It's a term of entreaty. It is, again, the, the old word that we have in the old King James, beseech you, urging you. It's a word of exhortation. It was used in classical Greek uh, as exhorting troops who are about to go to battle. Let's go. Let us go. Let's go to battle. It is a word that also speaks of comfort. It is used of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament as the one who comes alongside us to comfort us. It's like a coach who, who is on the sideline and, 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 and he's coming alongside the players. Guys, two more minutes. One more stop. Let's go. Players are exhausted by saying, let us go. Let's go. Let's go. One more stop. Let's go. So Paul is coming again to encourage. Now while this, his tone is not, while he's not commanding, while he's exhorting, make no mistake about it, it is not as though he's coming and say, all right, here's a little suggestion. Do with it as you will. That's not the case at all. That is not the case at all. The call is one of great urgency. Paul knows that he's saying, let's go. There is no other way to respond. They are not free to do with this appeal as they choose. But Paul is using this because what he wants is, see, the strength of the appeal is not in the personality of Paul. It is even position of an apostle. It is rather in the nature of the call itself. It is the call itself. It is not I, Paul, who is commanding you. It is the nature of the call itself that compels you. And we will see that, I trust. That this indeed is a call for all of us, that is compelling. One that requires only, only one response. See, Paul is not appealing to manipulations. I don't know if you realize that. He is, he's not coming to try to appeal to their emotions. He's not trying to manipulate them. What he wants is for them to remember. To put their eyes on the mercy of God. And then to allow the strength of that to cause them to respond. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God in view of God's mercy. That's another way it's rendered. In view of God's mercy. The ground for Paul's appeal has to do with all that he's been communicating in chapter, that he's communicating in chapters 1 to 11 of the letter. 
namely that God has in Christ shown mercy towards guilty, pitiful, miserable, helpless sinners. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Those who, because of their sin, deserve death, deserve condemnation, for the wages of sin is death. Those who are unable to satisfy the righteous requirements of God's law. And to them, God displayed his mercy as he put forth his son as he offered up his son to die for their sins to do for them what they could not do for themselves it is to those who then came to know God as not just a just and holy God but as a justifier of those who put their faith in Christ it is to them that Paul is making this appeal. To present their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And of course, this appeal then is most reasonable. It is the most reasonable thing to do. Guilty, miserable sinners, helpless and God did the unthinkable. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And as if we think, no big deal. What of God tells us? Yeah, perhaps. For a righteous man, someone would dare die. No, but God died not for the righteous but for the unrighteous. For those who deserve judgment and condemnation. So of course, in view of such mercy, the God to present themselves as living sacrifices to God is most reasonable. Do you see the reasonableness of this call, brothers and sisters, in Christ? Do you see it? Do you see it? We too were like they were dead in our sins, deserving condemnation brothers and sisters there was nothing in us that would cause a holy and righteous God to accept us God did not look through the corridors of history and say oh Thomas would be a pretty decent guy all of us here this morning would in any way deserve anything but condemnation that's where we must begin. We can never, 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 never appreciate the wonders of God's mercy and see the need and want to respond unless we've come face to face 
with our condition of unworthiness because of our sin. That's where it must begin. And if you've been in the church and your heart is indifferent, and as you hear, you find yourself indifferent to this call, ask yourself this. Have you faced your condition as a sinner before God? Not have you made mistakes. Not have you failed to live up to your expectations. That you failed to abide by your own principles. That's not the point. Everyone knows that sense. Everyone knows that sense. We can walk and talk to the intellectuals, to the uneducated. Everyone knows that sense. No, I have not been able to do what I know I ought to do. That's not the point. Sin is sin in reference to a holy God, not in reference to me not meeting my own standards. Have you sin yourself as a sinner before a holy and righteous God? And have you come to understand that you are guilty before him. Not even that you even feel guilty. Because our, in our sinful condition at times, we may not even feel guilty. That is not the point. Objective reality, as sinners, you are guilty. And maybe you are here this morning and you've come here and you've, you, you've never come to that realization. You see, the call that we're about to expand upon later may not make much sense to you. The call to consecrate ourselves to God is reasonable only in view of the mercy of God for us. And all of us who've known the mercy of God find that there's only one way to respond, as we just sang. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingle down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine that were present far too small? And here's the logic. Love so amazing, so divine. Mercy so amazing, so divine. Then what demands my soul, my life, my all? Read of this same logic in 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The call, my dear brothers and sisters, is not for us to consecrate ourselves, to present ourselves as offering in order to gain, to gain the acceptance of God, favor of God, we are to pursue a consecrated life because 
we are already accepted in Christ because we've already received mercy. That's the indicative that Paul is using for all the imperatives that we see in the letter and certainly in chapter 12 going forward. And we can't miss it. We've received mercy. Therefore then, do this, do that. Pursuing consecration without the experience of God's mercy is not a good thing. Oh, it is not. For it leads to one or two things. Despair. I can never please him. I can never do enough. Or legalism. As we compare ourselves to what others, we can pat ourselves in the back, thinking the service that we render, the good things that we do, somehow we're gaining points with God. Oh no. Our consecration is grounded in the reality of God's mercy. It is a, a result of God's mercy, not its cause. So the call that we have before us is a reasonable call. It is a reasonable call because of what God, in his mercy, has accomplished for us in Christ. There's another reason why it is reasonable. And it is this. See, the mercy of God is not just something that we experience at the beginning of our salvation. It is not just something that we see its value in terms of our justification. The mercy of God, the mercy of God is our ongoing experience throughout, through every stage of our salvation, brothers and sisters. God is at work in us, in his mercy now as brothers and sisters, to change us into the image of his son. It is because of his mercy that we even desire to live a consecrated life. And where do we get the power day after day to do the things that we're being asked to do? It is again the mercy of God. So the logic is this. Since now, God is also at work in his mercy, changing you and me. Since that's what he's doing now, the only reasonable response is to do what? To join him. To yield ourselves to him. And say, yes, Lord, let your mercy achieve its work in me. The so our consecration is, that should be, our, the response to what God has done in the past and what he's doing in our lives until we see Christ. Point number two, an all-encompassing call. The call is not just reasonable. Again, we could spend the whole text sermon this morning on that. But we certainly won't do that. It is not just a reasonable call, the only call that makes sense. It is an all-encompassing call. I appeal to you 
Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is Paul asking his readers to do? Paul is asking his readers to do something that they are fairly familiar with, at least the idea is something that they are familiar with. For this assume that some, there is some familiarity with the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament. So this is the background that we must keep, that we must have in mind. And Paul knew that his readers had that in mind, that God had asked the children of Israel to come in. And, and that's why the whole priesthood, um, the priests were there to bring sacrifices to God. So that's the background. But what we need to keep in mind here is that God is not asking us the call to present ourselves to, as, as li- our bodies as living sacrifices is not to atone for our sin or to add to what Christ has done in atoning for our sin. That work was completed at the cross. So what Paul has in view is, is really sacrificing, sacrifices of thanksgiving, which they perform many times in the Old Testament. So Paul is saying, in view of what God has done for you, out of gratitude to him, bring this sacrifice. That is, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Not to gain his mercy, but because we have received his mercy. The call is to present our physical bodies, brothers and sisters, as living sacrifices. I should say that even though we sing this in chapter 12, and again, most scholars will say, okay, chapter 1 to 11... Primarily, the emphasis on doctrine in chapter 12, exhortations. But again, if you read the book of Romans very carefully, you're going to see we have exhortations throughout the book of Romans. So what Paul is bringing here in, on chapter 12 is something that he already spoke of in Romans chapter 6. Where the Bible says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present, same word, your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The use of the body is very, very important in Paul's old theology. If you read all of his letters, you're going to, you, you will see that. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, 15, for example, in, in his exhortation against sexual immorality, Paul says this. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. See, Paul did not say, well, this is what might happen if you engage in sexual immorality. You may catch this illness or that illness or you know, how it may damage you emotionally. 
is grounding this exhortation in the reality that our bodies belong to God. Do you see that? The body is for the Lord. The Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord in all and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then, you see the again same, shall I then, since our bodies belong to Christ, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Our bodies, brothers and sisters, we may look in the mirror this morning and may not have been too pleased with what you see. We all have different bodies. They look different. Some of us are in great shape. Others, not in such great shape. Our bodies, to a large degree, are byproducts of in, you know, genes. And maybe, someone say, well, Thomas, it's exercise, buddy. <laughs> See, the point is not about how our bodies look. Our bodies, regardless of how they look. Maybe you can't walk. Maybe you can see well. The point is our bodies belong to God. And they are to be used as instruments for righteousness. That is the point of this text. That our bodies are to be used as instruments of unrighteousness once they were used for sin. But now they need to be used as instruments for righteousness. Our bodies, yes, literally bodies. That's, that's the word that we have. And that's what exactly Paul is talking about. Our eyes, our ears, our tongues, our hands, our feet, our minds are to be devoted to God in holiness. First Thessalonians, we see this again, this exhortation that we work hold in our body for holiness, not unholiness. Our bodies as believers are to be set apart for God. And the scripture tells us here that the offering of our bodies, brothers and sisters, is acceptable and well or well pleasing. To God. That what we do this morning, what did we do? Did we use our bodies? Yeah, what am I doing now? Using the body that God has given me. And the Bible tells us that our service, while in itself it is imperfect, by the mercy of God, as it is presented through Christ is acceptable in the sight of God. Our worship, our singing, all that we do, our using our hands to work, to help, to serve others, our minds. We ought to do so with God in view. And this, when we use them as instruments for righteousness, 
God is pleased. The book of Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15 we read, Through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. How do we do that? Through Christ. And God accepts it. So our service, what we do here, is acceptable and well-pleasing to God as we offer it to Christ. So the call contains here, the call that we have here, not only tells us to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God, and that God accepts it, and that this presenting is our reasonable or logical or spiritual service. We won't go into which is the best translation here, but regardless, whether it's, if it says worship, reasonable worship, well, it involves service. Service ultimately leads, um, is a, an aspect of our worship. Say so the, the Greek word allows for both, so if you have a text, a version that says uh, reasonable service or spiritual worship, it's because of just the language that we have here. But we, we really, the, the point of the matter is um, that what we do, and that's the main point, what we do as we present our bodies to God is logical, is right, the only response that makes sense. It represents our service to God, our worship to God. So, from there, Paul then moves to verse 2, where our consecration doesn't just entail presenting our bodies, but we're told two more things. The first one is negative. We are not to conform to the world. We are not to conform ourselves to the world. J.B. Phillips puts it like this. Maybe you've heard this translation. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. But let God remold your minds from within. The Bible is very clear that the world is not a friend. The world is not a friend. And that the Bible calls us not to love the world. Again, it's not talking about not loving the peoples of the world. As Christians, we must, we must love all people and seek their highest good in Christ. But the world system is opposed to the kingdom of God. Its values, its tendencies, its priorities stand in opposition to the values and priorities of the kingdom of God. It is an enemy and we must resist it. We must not allow that world to squeeze us, to force us into conformity to its thought patterns, to its behaviors. Because we've received the mercy of God and we belong to Christ. We live in this world, but we are not of the world. So we must resist the pressure, brothers and sisters, young and old, to conform. And may the Spirit of God help us realize what in the world does that mean? Where are we tempted to conform to the world? Our consecration involves that not conforming. See, the Bible is, has many negatives. We like to say, well, we'll do, don'ts, yes. The Bible has a lot of don'ts, brothers and sisters. The positives are seen often next 
to the negatives. Well, we are not to conform, but that's not all. But we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And the word that is used for transformed, to be transformed, is the same word where we get the English word metamorphosis. It is a word that is used in the account of transfiguration in Matthew 17 and Mark 9, where the Bible tells us that Jesus was transfigured before them. And this word is used one other place in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, where we read, And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, same word, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, briefly, the call to, to be transformed then has to do with the Spirit of God using the Word of God to shape our thinking and behavior. And to make us increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. This is in direct opposition to what the spirit of the world does. As he blinds and holds unbelievers captives. Lest they see the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. The spirit of God un it undoes that in our lives. That's what he does. As we open God's word. As we he then he takes the word of God to renew our mind and to change us into the image of Christ. And it's good to see that the call to be transformed is connected, is right next to the call that we saw before, to present our bodies as living sacrifices. We cannot present our bodies as living sacrifices unless our minds are being renewed. See, this morning, I told my tongue, you sing to God. See, my tongue did not just start singing by itself. My mind has been transformed by the truth of God's word. Therefore, then say, tongue, you sing of your God. That's what happens when your mind is renewed. You tell your body what to do. Even your emotions. Have you done that? Sitting down, depressed, discouraged, all those D words you can imagine. And then you say, Lord, help me. And you open the stacks, you meditate on the mercy of God. And feel like singing. Say, oh, sing of your God. Maybe this morning you told your body, gather with God's people this morning. Told your feet, you didn't feel like getting out of bed perhaps. But you know this is where you need to be this morning. Your mind has been transformed. Therefore, you present your bodies. Therefore, you sing. And by the way, again, I don't, please don't misunderstand me. Please do not misunderstand me. If 
singing to God is not something you feel like doing at all. Joining in the praise of God with your body. You may ask yourself, you should ask yourself the question, has your mind been renewed, been transformed? Have you known the mercy of God? Again, just a question for us to, by which we can examine ourselves. Do not be conformed, be transformed. Again, there are many, many practical implications to, to these two exhortations. We will not have the time to go into them. But let me just say this. This call to nonconformity to the world and to being transformed by the Spirit of God is one that should cause us to do a very practical thing. What are we putting into our mind? The Spirit of God doesn't work independently of His Word. He uses the Word to transform us. Are we then putting ourselves under the light of God's Word, reading His Word, meditating on His Word, studying His Word? Or is our main diet that which the world is feeding us? Thank, I love children's songs, and I found this one helpful this morning as I was thinking about this. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Boys and girls, you've heard that? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, for the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. What we see, what we hear affects us. May we allow the word of God to shape us, to shape our thinking. Lastly, the call that is before us is not just reasonable, it is not just all-encompassing, what calls for everything. It is a God-glorifying call. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And here, I want to say this very, very quickly. The call to Christian consecration. The call to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. To not conform to the world. To be transformed by the renewal of our mind. It glorifies the mercy of God as God in His mercy turns us from rebels to His will. To those who find pleasure and delight in the will of God. Can I say that again, brothers and sisters? call to Christian consecration glorifies God as the mercy of God changes us from rebels to God's will those who hated God those who despise the word of God the will of God into those who not only because their mind have been to see discern yeah this is what God wants not just that but as they respond, as they do it, and they see, oh, God's will is good, perfect.
correct. That's what's in view here. And as we experience this, God is pleased. God is glorified. Because we're not always like that, you see. Once we were rebels, his word was absolutely boring to us. But now we say, oh, how I love your word. It's what the Spirit of God is doing in us, changing us, transforming us daily by the word of God. That the things that we once hated were indifferent to, now we love. We find the doing of God's will to be that which most delights us. That which is most satisfying to us. We revel in the perfect will of God. And this is something that the Spirit of God does, brothers and sisters as he works in us, as he changes us. Help us proclaim that God is the greatest of all beings, that God is our greatest treasure and joy. As we ask, why do you do this? Why do you do that? Because God is that good. Why are you so excited? Oh, because God is that good. Why are you a fanatic? Why are you going so far? Oh, I'm not going far enough. That's my problem. My God is so good. You asking me, Thomas, don't get too excited. No, that's not my problem. I am not excited enough. My heart is too cold. That's my problem. The mercy of God, the wonders of God, the will of God, Oh, that God would work, continually work, brothers and sisters, to change us. To find his will good, perfect, delightful. So why? Oh, he changed me. The mercy of God is glorified as that happens in us. As we find ourselves becoming like our Savior who said, My food is to do what? The will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. His satisfaction was in the doing of the will of his Father. And so we want to reflect this in our lives as well. William Borden was a graduate of Yale University in 1909, he had everything that he could have hoped for, handsome, from a wealthy family. And he received God's call to be a missionary in China, to present his life as an offering for the work of God. And his friends looked at him and said, Are you crazy? Are you crazy? Saying goodbye to all of this to go to China? Thought he was throwing his life away. But because of the power of God's mercy in his life, they could not stop him 
from doing what God wanted him to do. He had heard this call well. So at age 25, he left for China. But in the providence of God, he did not get to use his life in China for while he was on his way. He contracted meningitis and died. And as he lay dying, he left a note saying, No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. He understood that the call was reasonable. The call to offer his life, his body, everything he had was the most reasonable response to the mercy of God. He understood it encompassed everything he had. And his pleasure was bound in the doing of God's will. That's all that mattered to him. I appeal to you, my dear brothers and sisters here at Baraka. By the mercies of our God... To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, Baraka, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect the call is reasonable can we say no to it the call is all encompassing can we withhold anything from the one who gave us all the call is God glorifying can there be a greater end to pursue And finally, I want to say again a word to you if you are here this morning and, and you have not known the mercy of God. I don't know if I need to convince you that you've sinned against God. Boys, girls, young men, young women, if you've never known the mercy of God, you know that what the Bible says is true. The Bible is the book that knows you. That you're a sinner before God. And that there's great consequence for your sin. It's not just that you feel bad over your failures. But that you are guilty before your maker, the God who's made you, the God who holds your very breath, even this morning. That there is no hope apart from his mercy for you. Not your good works, not your best efforts, not even coming to church, not even trying to do your best, not even self-sacrifice.
The first call is for you to to look to Christ and say, nothing in my hand I am bringing to you, Christ. I am clinging to your cross. I am trusting in what you did for me at the cross. I needed to be on that cross. I am the one who needed to die. You are crushed for me. You died so that I might live. I am looking to you in faith, Jesus. That's your call for you. And once you receive this call and you respond to it, then you will be able gladly, joyfully to join us in doing the only thing that makes sense in the world. Joyfully offer ourselves to our precious most satisfying God. The God to whom all glory belongs. Yes, Father. Be glorified in our midst this morning as you use your word to grip us once again to grip our hearts and minds, Lord, with the reality of what you have done for us and what you are doing because of your mercy in Christ. Be glorified. And please, Lord, be merciful toward those who don't know you this morning. Your mercy be strong in calling them and bringing them to your son, in whose name we pray. Amen.